continuing our series on the life of Christ, and we are, believe it or not, getting close to the end. In fact, we just have a few more lessons. Well, maybe, maybe not more than three. Maybe I can get it done in two if I'm really good before we actually get to uh, what is the Passover of Christ, the Lord's Supper, as we like to call it. And then from that point, of course, it's his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So I know I've said it before we're getting to the end. I just find myself um, parking on one passage longer than I had intended in preparation. So hopefully I can get you guys here to the end before the end of the summer, even the ascension and, and the last instruction. That is my goal. We'll see. Sam is not hopeful. He does not have much trust in me to be able to do these things. I'm fully aware of that, Sam. Don't even say it, man. I know. <laughs> All right. We're in John chapter 12. Let's take a look uh, beginning in verse 37. When we were together last time, we talked about the passage right before verses 32 through 36, how in John, yep, John chapter 12. And um, let's go and pick up in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed him not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. When Isaiah was giving this prophecy, some prophecies have, you might say, dual fulfillment. There is a prophecy given for something near or now and a prophecy given for something later. And you find in the Old Testament this is on more than one occasion. At least on one occasion, the Old Testament prophets are speaking of what will be the second coming of Christ and, and the tribulation period before that time and some of the chaos that is going on. And there seems to be a dual fulfillment of what the Jews were experiencing at that moment and also what they would experience later. I believe that when Isaiah was giving this prophecy about the fact that God was blinding the eyes and the hearts of the Jews, so that they would not repent, so that they, that, that they would be judged, I believe he was speaking about that time. Because that was the time of the exile. That was the time when, when uh, the prophets were telling the Israelites that judgment is coming. There is no turning back now. <clears throat> God has already locked in your judgment. At this point, just accept it. Uh, you are going to go into exile. It is going to be a 70 years exile, and then you'll return. By that point, when the prophecies were being given about the exile and the return, there was no going back. And I believe that Isaiah was referring to the fact that God was basically keeping the Israelites from repentance so that they would suffer judgment. Now, that is a difficult concept to grasp when we consider God, at least in the New Testament, and, and God being so merciful and so gracious and his mercies are new every day. How do you marry those two views of God together? And before I give you the answer, I'd like you to think back to an actual story in the Old Testament referring to the time of the Israelites in Egypt. You remember that when they were in slavery for that period of time and um, Moses was coming to Pharaoh and he was saying, let my people go, right? You remember, this is all coming back to you, the book of Exodus, right? Well, do you remember how 
Uh, in the book of Exodus, I'm not going to turn to the passage because I do want to move on from this, but the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that ring a bell? Are you kind of having some memories of that statement, God hardening Pharaoh's heart? If you look back to the verses previous, you will find that before it says, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, you'll see, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Essentially, what I see is a pattern in the Old Testament, specifically in this story with Pharaoh and the Israelites being enslaved, that Pharaoh had already rejected God multiple times. Pharaoh had hardened his heart, rebelled against God, refused to acknowledge God. And so God basically just stated, I'm going to continue doing to Pharaoh what Pharaoh had already done to himself. That Pharaoh has made the decision to harden his heart against me. I'm going to continue that hardening. So that Pharaoh will experience the brunt of my judgment for my glory, for God's glory. I believe that a similar scenario takes place with the Jews during the time of the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets, Jeremiah. Similar scenario where the Jews had rejected God many times, had hardened their hearts many times, had blinded their eyes many times, and God now says, all right, I'm just going to continue doing with you what you've already done for yourself. I do not believe that this prophecy of Isaiah is referring to a people looking for God, seeking God, and then God says, nope, you can't find me, I'm going to blind you. I believe from the character I see in God, from the, from the illustration in Pharaoh's life, that this is a blinding upon folks who've already chosen to be blinded. And why? For the same reason, I think, of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his heart so that judgment in its fullest sense would come down on Pharaoh and the nations would tremble when they saw what God did to the Egyptians. And it worked, by the way. After the, the Jews exited Egypt, the nations were trembling, and they're like freaking out by the God of the Israelites because they'd heard what he'd done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I think the same thing with Isaiah. The prophet, as he was prophesying, God is saying, look, at this point now, I'm going to use you as an illustration to future generations. But to do that, I'm going to blind you who've already chosen to be blinded so that when the full judgment comes, you'll receive it as I continue to receive it for the sake of others because you've already chosen this path. And now we're reading here that John is stating this prophecy is being fulfilled in a similar way during the time of Christ. This is not the first time something like this has happened. It's already happened at least twice with the Jews as it was originally prophesied with Isaiah and with Pharaoh, as I just stated. I would imagine it's happened many other times outside of scriptures, even mentioned, where people have chosen a path away from God, and God said, fine, if that's what you want, then I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, essentially harden what's already been hardened to bring judgment down on you. Does that mean that they're going to hell? Does this hardening of the heart to receive judgment mean they're never going to get saved? No, this passage is not referring to the ultimate decision of being saved. It's referring to the, the decision they've made to run from God, and God wants to keep them on that path, at least for a time, until the judgment comes upon them for the sake of maybe others, maybe even for their sake, because when the judgment does fully come upon them, maybe then when God lifts off the blinding, takes away the hardening, maybe they'll be ready to actually receive God in fullness as they should have in the beginning. We do know it's not God's will that any should perish. So whatever God does is for the purpose of the soul's salvation. It has to be. Otherwise, Scripture doesn't match with Scripture. 
Whenever you see a passage of Scripture like this, or in the Old Testament when Isaiah prophesied it originally, or, or when the, in the Old Testament with Pharaoh, whenever a passage like that bothers you, oh, God hardened his heart, God blinded their eyes, you need to do an in-depth study of the character of God and then trust the character of God. Do not let one passage define every nuance of God's qualities and character to you. Let the overall scripture define the character and the parts that are difficult filter it through what we know about God's character. Now, we do know God is love, but we also do know God is just. You cannot ignore that part. And in his justness, in his righteousness, God must judge wickedness. So he blinds their eyes, hardens their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. What does that mean? God is basically saying, I'm a big softy. He's saying, even the worst, I will heal them if they ask. What a great reminder of us in the midst of a difficult passage. He says, because even these guys, if they were to turn back to me, I would accept them. I would heal them. But that would hinder my plan. Not that he wants them going to hell but it would hinder my plan of bringing down judgment as I prophesied that I would do. Now remember, this prophecy is specifically talking about the Jews in the Old Testament. God had already said through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, he'd already stated, you are going to be exiled. It's going to happen. For 70 years, it's going to happen. God is not going to make himself a liar, but God also knows this about himself. If they repent, I will forgive them. (laughs) And so God basically says, I need to not let them repent because I've already made this prophecy and it's going to happen now. That does not mean the individual can't go to heaven. It means I'm not going to allow, essentially, a revival in Israel. That's basically what he's saying. I'm going to hold back a revival in Israel because then my prophecy of exile and future return wouldn't come true because if there was a revival, I would forgive and would not exile them. I believe in God's sovereignty, and I believe that once God makes a prophetic uh, statement, this is going to happen, then I believe that there there is no chance of man's free will changing what God promises or claims will happen. Now, I don't believe that God's sovereignty plays as much a part in our daily lives as some religious circles believe. I don't believe that God's sovereignty states this is going to happen to us today, you know, May 27th or May 17th or last month, you know, April 15th, whatever. I'm not saying that God is in his sovereignty making prophetic statements about my daily life, monthly life, yearly life, but there are prophetic statements in God's word, and there's no amount of free will I or you have that will change that. And in the Old Testament, God made prophecies, and they weren't going to change, but God also says if they had repented, I would have changed. So they can't repent because I can't change. Not this, because I prophesied it. I promised it. And so in a similar sense, it seems now, Jesus, earlier we talked about how Jesus had turned to Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have taken you under my wing as, 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 you know, as my children, and I would have comforted you and protected you. Jerusalem rejected. Jerusalem rebelled. Israel said no. And so now God says, all right, so that's the, that's the path you've chosen. Now I'm going to bring judgment on you. And I'm going to harden your heart so you continue on that path as a nation and bring the Gentiles in. 
Verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Are you in your Bible, John 12, guys? Verse 42 and 43? What do you guys think about that verse? Let me ask you a question. Were these Pharisees saved? Read it again. They believed on him. Okay. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay. Believe he exists. The devil is believe he exists, but this phrase, believe on him, is not the same as believing essentially in his existence. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I personally believe they are. You say, well, what about that confession part? Because you quote another verse, Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead and thou shalt be saved, right? So I can quote one verse and you can quote another verse and we can quote other verses and bring let's bring baptism into it. You know, baptize and repent, right? Repent and be baptized. So, you know, what's going on here? I do not believe that confession is the verbal statement to others Hey, I'm a Christian. Did you know I'm a Christian? Or a t-shirt that you wear or a hat on your head or, you know, a badge of something that is stated publicly. I do not believe that salvation comes through the verbal statement of your belief to others. I believe in Romans 10, 9, confess the Lord Jesus Christ is in reference to confessing that Jesus is Lord. Not necessarily to every person you know or any person that you know, but essentially coming to the point where you recognize, confess in your heart, confess publicly. Obviously, public confession is good, but basically you are coming to the point where you confess, accept, believe that Jesus is God. Because how can you be saved by Christ if you do not believe Christ can save? How can you be saved by Christ if you do not believe Christ is God? If you believe Christ is a man and can save you, then you don't understand sin or salvation or God or judgment, right? (laughs) Or eternity. So you have to have a basic understanding of who Christ claims to be and a basic understanding of what Christ claimed to do. And then with that understanding, you have to come to a point where you you confess, believe, state, understand that Christ is not a liar He is God, and his death is sufficient. The idea that you have to confess to someone out loud, I believe in Jesus or you're not saved, comes from a variety of religions, including Catholicism, confession to a priest. Even Catholicism believes doing it one time is not enough. You basically have to do it before you die, which is, you know, the last rites. Like if you miss out and don't have those last rites, then you go to purgatory for some time. Depending on my understanding of Catholicism, depending on how bad or good you were, you essentially go to purgatory. And that's your punishment for not having last rites, not confessing right before you die. Which is why suicide for Catholics is a direct card to hell, because if you commit suicide, you can't confess suicide after committing suicide, right? So that's a Catholic belief. That's not in the Bible. I'm not condoning suicide. I'm not saying that it's okay or biblical. I'm stating this idea that suicide sends you to hell is purely Catholic. It is not biblical. So 
I'm challenging you what may be a belief system regarding confession that, well, if they didn't tell someone, then they're not saved. I'm challenging you on that. I don't see that in Scripture. There's other verses that don't even mention confession. In fact, most verses referring to salvation do not mention confession. Most mention some form of faith or belief. Some mention repentance. And and a fewer mention baptism. And even less than that mention some type of confession. Is it all of these things? Because if if it's confession, then it also has to be baptism. Because more verses mention baptism paired with salvation than I I see than, than some form of confession. I don't believe it's baptism or confession. Again, I believe it's faith. It's trust. It's belief. You know, the same thing said in different ways. The confession is a statement of what you already believe. Baptism is an illustration of what you already believe. The confession and the baptism aren't the actual path to salvation. All right, well, then, Russ, if someone doesn't confess, are they saved? All right, my question to you then is, if someone doesn't get baptized, are they saved? Well, yeah, they're saved, not baptized. Well, then they're saved if they don't confess. Because, again, baptism, is, 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 I think, is a trickier one to answer than confession and seems to be attached to salvation closer than confession. And if you believe someone can be saved and not baptized, then, you, in my opinion, logically, biblically, you have to come to the point where you believe someone can be saved without confession. And when I say confession, I'm defining it as confessing verbally to other people that you are a Christian. That's what I'm talking about. Because that's what this text is talking about here. Essentially, the Pharisees were saved, but didn't want to tell anyone. Does that make them unsaved? No, it makes them cowards. Makes them prideful. Makes them selfish. They, they want the prestige of pharisaical position, without the attack of believing something that contradicts it. Now, I will give you guys, we're going to stop and talk about this, so write it down, mark your Bible, we'll have a conversation about this at the end of this Bible study for those that are in the room. But um, it says in verse 43, specifically about them, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So, I think cowardice is a, is a reason why some would not confess. I think pride and selfishness is a reason why some would not confess. We're told for this group specifically The reason they didn't confess is they didn't want to lose the popularity that they held in that position. And if they confessed Christ, they would have lost that popularity, that praise that people were giving. They would have been the enemy of the state rather than part of the deep state of Israel, you might say. What does that mean for us? I think we can, if we're not careful, find ourselves in a similar position. That we as Christians may be scared to state the truth because we lose popularity amongst those in our circle. We live in what has historically been a Christian nation. It is much less so than it has been ever a Christian nation still has its roots in Christian nation. You can look at the Constitution God has mentioned and a moral standard from God's word is mentioned. So regardless of what the masses are saying, our Constitution is still deeply embedded in Christianity. But I am finding that a lot of Christians and a lot of churches and a lot of preachers and a lot of speakers and a lot of spiritual leaders are scared to talk about any truth, lest it offend let alone 
the real difficult truths because they know it will offend. Their platform is too big. Their online presence is too large. And they're not willing to offend those watching online, let alone those in the room, when they make a statement regarding truth. And so you find yourself listening to messages that sometimes get close to the truth but veer off right before they get there. Others that don't even come in the general area, like they're not even in the vicinity of truth. It's just things that, that sound good. And I'm not even saying not from the Bible, because look, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that really are just purely encouraging. And you could preach many, many messages and not deal with hard truths if you wanted to. If you cherry-picked the Bible, I could easily preach every Sunday from the Bible and only give messages that were easy to hear and encouraging while using the Bible. I could do that. There's enough information here and enough encouragement here where if I didn't preach through it like I do, that could be done. And a lot are doing it. Doesn't mean these men don't believe in the Bible. Doesn't mean they don't believe in God. Doesn't mean they don't believe the Bible's true. But like these Pharisees, they love the praise of men more than God. And they've justified it by saying, well, I am using the Bible. Sure you are. But you're not necessarily using it in context. And when you do use it in context, you always stop short of the hard truths. The best case scenario is the people you are spiritually feeding never grow up. Because when the information given to them is all just sugary and fluffy and, and, and encouraging, I get the, the benefit of that. It doesn't strengthen the individual. God's word is not just meant to give comfort and peace. It does do that. God's word is also meant to make you stronger. But if they never get to those passages that challenge you and make you stronger, you don't get stronger, at least not through the preaching of God's word, you don't. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is they come out of the messages and the series of preaching and messages with something that is completely anti-Bible because they fill in the blanks with their own philosophies. <laughs> they fill in the gaps with people who are willing to talk about these truths, but from the other side of that truth. And since they're not given God's word regarding this truth, they're only given the fluff, their opinions regarding abortion and the LGBT movement and, and some of these difficult things, their opinions are only based in what they've heard from the world because the spiritual leaders in their lives don't want to offend. That's worst case scenario in my mind. And then they have something that's pseudo-Christianity. They, they have a belief system that's part the Bible and part the world. And where that balance is, nobody knows. And at some point, you end up with a bunch of people who now don't want the Bible at all. Sometimes even the preachers don't even use the Bible at all now. What's the point? If you're going to talk about encouraging stuff, there's other things outside the Bible you can use. So, I'm not saying look for opportunities to speak on truths that are hard to hear, but definitely do not run from them when the opportunity occurs. And if you are walking away from a conversation, let it be for a reason that is other than, well, I don't want them to not like me. 
There are reasons to walk away from conversations. The Bible says don't cast your pearl before swine. There are reasons why you would say, you know what, there's just no purpose in having this conversation. I get it. But don't let it be, well, if I say it, they won't like me anymore. Then you know you got the wrong reason. All right, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 12. Verse 40. Oh, wait, where am I at? No, I'm in the wrong text. I'm sorry. Hold on. I'm going backwards. We're going to go to Mark 13. Mark 13 and verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John asked him privately, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. I just spoke a message, a preached a message not many weeks ago on uh, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. And Christ mentions that here, and the epistles, and on more than one occasion, warn about being deceived by false teachers and being fooled, and, and how Christians can be swayed if they're not careful, the simple-minded and, and uh, the outright foolish. So this is a problem. This is a problem with people who necessarily aren't necessarily evil or wicked. They might even want the truth, but the, the, the lies sound so convincing, they embrace the lies. What is the best defense against deception? Truth. Truth is the best defense against deception. What is the second best defense against deception? Wisdom. Can't point to that in Scripture, so this is my opinion overall of my understanding of the Bible, and I'll tell you why in that order. Because wisdom is the ability to know what to do with the information that you have. And if you do not have truth, then wisdom can't take you very far. You can be a wise person, but if you don't have the foundation of truth, that wisdom can't really help you as much as it could otherwise. If, you, if someone is asking for some of your advice, and they give you a little bit of information, and you give advice based off of that information, and then they come back and say, well, your information didn't help. It destroyed everything. You say, really? Wow, tell me what happened. And they told you, you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, I didn't know what you just said. If I knew what you just said in this time, I would not have given you that advice. I would have given you different advice. See, it doesn't mean you weren't wise in the advice you gave. Now, maybe you weren't wise in asking the right questions, but it doesn't mean your advice was unwise. Your advice was uninformed. Someone can be wise and yet uninformed, and therefore their wisdom isn't really very helpful. So the greatest help against deception is truth, truth, truth. As much truth as you can soak in. But then if all you've got is the truth, and you have truth, and you've got lies, how do you determine which one is right? That's where wisdom comes in. That's, that's exactly what wisdom does for you. Wisdom tells you what to do with what you've got. Here's truth. Here's not truth. Why wisdom tells me this is truth. The world might call it critical thinking. The world might call it uh, logic, reason. The world might call it other things. In fact, the world even calls it wisdom sometimes. The Bible refers to it as worldly wisdom. But the truth of God's word is what allows wisdom to direct you towards success. If you know someone who is struggling with deception 
Start with truth. Give them truth. Speak truth into their lives. Conversations always directed towards truth. And then pray constantly for their wisdom, that they would gain wisdom. If this person wants to know the truth, then give them truth and tell them to pray for wisdom. God promises to give it liberally. And upbraideth not, meaning he won't call you out on asking for too much. He's not going to say, no, no, you had your fair share. No more wisdom for you. God won't do that. God will give wisdom and then give wisdom and then give more wisdom. As much as you ask, the more you receive. So, don't be deceived, he says. Deceived about what? Deceived about what will essentially be the end times. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but let's go back to this first part of chapter 13, where Christ is walking around, and what do the disciples say? They say, haven't we accomplished some amazing things with this temple? It truly is the pearl of Israel. People come from all around to worship at this place. They come from all around to see this beautiful sight. We are famous for this building. It brings national pride. When you look at it, you hold your chin up a little higher, your shoulders go back a little more, and you stand straight and tall, just being in the presence of this beautiful building. Christ looks at it and says, you know what? There's going to come a day where not even one stone will stand on top of the other. Now, he didn't outrightly call it trash. (laughs) He basically said, it is of little value. Now, that's kind of interesting, coming from the same God in the Old Testament who gave explicit direction on how the first temple was to be built. Explicit direction. By the way, explicit direction on the first tabernacle on what would be in the tabernacle, and then further direction on what would be in the temple and and what we would look like. I mean, that's pretty amazing that that this God who's who's so involved in the tabernacle and then was giving direction as far as, I mean, think about this. David wanted to build a temple, and and God said, no, you can't build it. I won't let you. It's too important to me, and you're a man of war. I mean, even, even down to the fact of who could build it or not, that's a pretty big deal. That the, that the building, the temple, would have been as imp- that important to God that basically you're not the right guy to build it. When you talk about the tabernacle, God actually equipped people in the Old Testament to do the amazing work he asked of them, which was almost beyond their own ability to accomplish. The, the structure, the curtains, the embroideries, the, the gold plating, some of which was inside this tabernacle, uh, how it could be designed to be easily, well, not easily, but be taken down so they can be moved, all these things. And then God, we're told, you know, the Spirit of God came upon the workers, that some of them literally were Spirit-filled for that task. I mean, talk about an amazing event where you're, you're a contractor and literally you're Spirit-filled to do a job to build a building. How would that have felt for those Israelites? So it's kind of interesting that this same God who cared much about the tabernacle and the temple now looks at the temple in the New Testament and says, ah, it's, a, it's a little value. Why is that? It's not because it still wasn't a place of worship. It was. It's not because the Holy of Holies wasn't still holy. It was. In fact, the Holy of Holies was intact until Christ died on the cross, and then when he died, the, 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 the curtain ripped. And there was access to the Holy of Holies. If it was not Holy of Holy, I kind of feel like God would have ripped that curtain before. 
We find when um, Zacharias goes into the Holy of Holies to pray and the announcement of John the Baptist is given by the angel, it's in the Holy of Holies. So I, I think there was still a presence of God in the temple. Even in this temple, I think there was a presence of God. I think the Holy of Holies was a very deep presence of God. So why was God stating it is of little value? Not because of what had been the case up to this point, but because Christ knew within a very short time, this temple, this building, would just be another structure. Because his presence was going to exit that temple very soon into a new temple. The church. Not the building, the people. Christ is talking about the fact that in the future, no stone would be left on top of each other. That will be after his death, burial, resurrection, after the Pentecost. In fact, some decades after this is all going to happen. So Christ is not impressed with this building because Christ knows that the expiration date for this building is very, very soon. I also think that something not specifically mentioned in this text, but I think alluded to, the apostles seem to be a lot more impressed with the building than the presence of God in the building. Remember, what made the temple unique and special? It was God's presence. It wasn't the beauty of it. Why did God care so much about the beauty of the tabernacle and the temple? Why did that matter so much? Because God wanted his presence reflected with beautiful things. Not because God is prideful or arrogant, but God loves beautiful things. You say, well, then why is the world such a wreck? Well, we made it a wreck. (laughs) You can walk in your friend's house and see toys on the ground and Stuffed animals hanging from places they don't belong and dinner plates from the meal last night. And you can walk in there and say, wow, this, this wife, this mother doesn't love beautiful things. No, that's not the issue. They got kids who aren't overly thrilled about beautiful things. That's the issue. It's the kids who made the mess. I highly doubt the mothers running around throwing stuffed animals on top of cabinets and throwing blankets over fans and kicking trash on the ground. I don't think that is what's going on. It's the kids who don't care. It's the kids who've made a mess. The mom loves beautiful things. God loves beautiful things. And in God's design, according to his will, the temple was to be a beautiful thing, to reflect his beautiful character, which is the heart of every mother. They want their house to reflect the beauty that they see in the home, in the family, only for the kids to mess it up 10 minutes after it's been cleaned. So that's what's going on. But the apostles are so overwhelmed by the beauty that they forget what's inside. The presence of God. And again, I think this is alluded to. I think, personally, I see Christ being a little offended here. Not saying he's a weak man. I'm not, I think it's justified. A justifiable offense. Like, really... My father, God's presence in the building, and you want to talk about the beauty of the walls and the outside? Come on, man. Come on now. And Christ is basically saying, well, you can love this look of this building all you want. It's not going to be around much longer. And I think that we as the New Testament church have far too often done the very same thing with the buildings God gives us with which to worship in. 
I have heard from multiple pastors over many years that one of the most exciting and discouraging, one of the most um, unifying and breaking times for a church is the building project. It unites and it breaks apart. It excites and it discourages. It brings purpose and it brings chaos. <laughs> a building project. Why is that? Naturally, whenever you deal with something that is of high cost, you're going to have a variety of opinions on how much should be spent and on what it should be spent. You're gonna, you can't get around opinions. If there is a building project, there must be enough people in the building with which to need a building project. Otherwise, it's just pure foolishness. And then the people that are there that are few are going to say, what's wrong with you? We can't afford this. So if it can be afforded, that means there's enough people in the building to afford it, and that's usually a lot of people. You try getting one family to all unite on one thing, that's hard. You try getting 100 families to unite on something, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. So the nature of the beast of a building project sets the church up for confrontation. You can't get around it. What I think happens, though, is not that the church can't handle confrontation. It's not that a group of mature Christians shouldn't be able to say, well, I disagree that we should spend $30,000 on the bathroom. I'd rather it be closer to fifteen. It's not that they can't disagree. It's that those disagreements break them and they walk away. Because we should be able to disagree on things and still love each other. We should be able to say, well, that's 10000 more than I want to spend on that particular part of the building, but still say, but, you know, the people in the building are still worth more to me than my opinion on $10,000. So why, why is it that even in spite of the disagreements that a building project inevitably creates, why is it that so many churches find so much struggle during this time? Breaking away, walking away. I think that, as with many things, it rises and falls on leadership. Starts and ends with leadership. And I think it's one thing when a group of people in the church disagree on what something should look like and how much should be spent on it. I think that's understandable and it's healthy. It's a, I would be concerned if if a hundred families all shook their head yes every time something was brought up. I'd be like, are, are they all possessed? Is there like any opinion at all in this church? You know, what's going on here? So it's, it's understandable, it's natural, it's even healthy to some level of we have different opinions. The problem is when the pastor, the leadership, pastor's family, whoever's in leadership, makes the building to be something it's not. well, we've got to have a $40,000 bathroom because, you know, if people come and visit and they don't have, walk into a $45,000 bathroom, they won't stick around. They're making the bathroom the catch of souls when they use our bathroom and say, wow, and they're going to stay. That, people are like, are you serious? I, th I thought it was the worship. I thought it was the preaching. Like, it's the bathroom? Seriously? <laughs> I get you don't want a smelly bathroom. I get you don't want to walk into a bathroom you feel like you're going to be mugged, you know, like who's in here with me. I get that. Like, it's dark, right? I understand that. But do we, do we need to have marble floors and, you know, a 40000 investment on a small space because visitors need to be so impressed with our bathroom that they don't want to leave afterwards? Like, is that what's going on? That, I think, is bringing people to the breaking point. 
we got to have our sanctuary look a certain way so that people just won't want to leave when they're done. That's what brings them to the breaking point. Our building needs to be the best in town because there's so much competition out there that we got. Our building has to be the nicest one. That's what brings God's church to the breaking point. That's when they say, we can't stand this any longer. The church is the people. The church is what's inside. The church is not the building. Do churches inevitably need building projects? Sure. As God grows the people, so does the space need to grow. It is so very important that the church always remembers what the church is, especially during building projects. You, you cannot forget that. Because when you forget that, because here's another natural event, the building project will always cost you more than you originally budgeted, unless you're just stupid with money and say it's going to be $50 million. Well, of course, you're going to be under budget then, right? So unless you're stupid with money, it's going to cost you more than you thought. That's inevitable. That alone will stress out the people. Can God's people handle that stress? I think they can. When the leadership doesn't forget what the church is. It's when they forget that. People aren't willing to overspend on something that doesn't matter nearly as much as the leadership is claiming. Even being preached. And now you're thinking, maybe this church is the building. Well, then why would I want to stay here? I think that is what causes the problem, in my opinion. It's not the money. It's not the different opinions. It's that the leadership forgot what was inside. That's what happens with the apostles. In the presence of Christ, even in his presence, they forgot the true value of the temple. Who was inside? God, Christ, not overly, overly pleased, <laughs> and says, this will be a piece of junk of no value whatsoever, not too far from here. This building, we're improving. We're going to do the flooring. In fact, uh, one of the trustees and I just, it was just yes, just today, it was today, we were looking at some things and talking about some things about the, the floor. So we are not ignoring that. But you know what, folks? My goal with the flooring that we've already put down, the floor we're going to do here, the chairs eventually we're going to get, my goal is that the things we do will not distract from who God is. Not that when you walk in, all you see is the building. I want the building to be a point where you walk in, you don't see the building. You don't see the rolls in the carpets. You don't see the stains on the chairs. That when you walk in, you see Christ. That's my heart. And within reason, I'm willing to spend what needs to be spent within reason to make that happen. I am not willing to overspend. So when people walk in, they say, wow. Because then we've forgotten what the church is. Sam, you were right. I over-talked again. In your head, you knew it to be true. So we're going to end there now, and uh, we'll pick back up next time. For those joining us online, thank you, and hopefully you will see us again next week as we continue our series on the life of Christ. For those in the room, we'll have a chance to discuss some of these topics we talked about tonight. Have a great night.